thrusters won't stop firing. I think I'm being followed. My dad is turning green, like literally green. My last nav check put me on the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Citizen Civs, Captains and Commanders, you're tuned to the Guard Frequency. As all the good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 147 of the Best Damn Space Sim Podcast Ever, and was recorded on Friday, December 2nd, and made available for download Tuesday, December 6th, over at GuardFrequency.com. I'm Ostron. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kinchado. And as always, keeping an eye on our dulcet tones is none other than Mr. Romulan Ale, a.k.a. Henry. Hello, everybody. So, what do we have this week, Kin Shadow? In this week's Squawk Box, we... Sorry. Tony said this would never happen, and he was wrong. <sighs> On the flight deck, we see what news from your favorite space sims has landed, as we bring you lots of juicy bits from around the verse, and the Subscribers Town Hall for Star Citizen, combat and blueprint changes, as well as how you use Seeker missiles to attack the darkness in, for Elite Dangerous. And news of the Foundation Patch, aka Patch 1.09 for No Man's Sky. And after that, we debate combat logging, before finally turning the feedback loop and letting you join in the conversation. That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what's coming through the Squawk Box. Hey, you boys, see a carrier around here? Uh, everything's under control. Situation normal. Cryptor, 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 this is Tony saying welcome to the Squawk Box, everyone. As we reported most recently in episode 137 of Guard Frequency, the M-Drive from NASA's Eagle Works Lab just made its rumored journalistic debut in the Journal of Propulsion and Power from the American Institute of Aeronautics and Astronautics. Uh, as we discussed, just because you're published doesn't mean you're right. Just because you're peer-reviewed doesn't mean you're accurate, but it's a step in the right direction. And what it does do it gets us to the next step of the scientific method, which is specifically replication. There have been several criticisms about the experimental method and apparatus. One of the more thorough debunkings came from Reddit. Yet, yet, I know, I know, the wretched hive of scum and villainy, but hear me out. Based on the experimental team's treatment of the thermal expansion, there is a bone or two to pick with the results. Essentially, this critic says if there was real thrust, it would have shown ripples when the machine turned off. Let me explain. No, there is too much. Let me sum up. Basically, when you turn the machine on, it has ripples during the calibration phase, meaning you test the spring, and no force is perfectly uniformly applied in anything, so it gets a little, the spring's a little ripply. You see ripples uh, in, the, in the graph and the output. And when you turn that calibration machine off as the, as the spring on the tensioner goes back, it's not uniform. It ripples. It, it's not perfect. Well, that same signal simply doesn't show up, during the application of the radio frequency microwaves, which supposedly creates the M-Drive's thrust. This one particular Reddit commenter was extremely dismissive of the entire setup based on the, just the ripples alone, and he was the only person I read thoroughly. Needless to say, we'll have additional reports, I'm sure, in the near future, but we will be keeping an eye on this uh, on the developments here and uh, bring you any further updates. And as uh, we also reported last time, there's a grand experiment that's going to happen anyway. If the Cana system that's going to put a CubeSat into orbit falls down, we'll have our experimental results very clearly. Well, I don't think I can comment on the experimental results. Um, I guess I would be a little hesitant to totally dismiss the, the research given the very small forces at work with this drive. I mean, they are in the micro-Newtons. So uh, the presence of any kind of ripples would really depend on how the sensitive the equipment is, right? Yes, and and, and the, the commenter guy basically said that they designed it to be overly sensitive, right? You want to because of the small amounts of force involved. Essentially, one commenter said that the solar sail stuff, which has been launched a couple times, is an order of magnitude of force smaller than this, and the yeah. Hall effect thrusters, uh, the ion drives that are, are being played with now also, are about two orders of magnitude larger. So where it's at right now is sort of in the middle between the absolute slowest propulsionless drive we can think of right now, and it's uh, smaller than a low propellant use drive uh, in the Hall thruster. So it's... <laughs> 
you'd hope it'd be better than solar sails, which are pretty passive. You know, you're just waiting for the solar wind to blow. Unless you're, unless you're pointing a big laser at them, right? That could be cool. But then, you know, again, it's, it's you're still somewhere. There's equal and opposite reaction. Newton is okay with this kind of stuff going on with a big laser pointed at a solar sail. This is, we're, we're way out of Newton territory with this thing still. I think it's interesting, Ken Shadow mentioned the uh, heat situation, the heat issue, the dissipation that should have caused uh, right. springing. That was called out in the paper. You know, the people are aware of that. And I think part of them pointing out the flaws is why it passes peer review. Peer review yeah. doesn't mean it works. Right. It means their method is good um, right. and that uh, they don't see anything obviously wrong with it. And I'm glad you mentioned that, you know, a lot of people reporting this right now aren't reporting that particular fact because you see a lot of sensationalized news right now. They pointed out the heat dissipation issue when they originally tested it in uh, yeah. in a non-vacuum chamber, right? That was right. the big deal. That was their actual suspected thrust vector was caused by the heat dissipation and air currents moving the the, the forces. Mm -hmm. And so that was the whole point they started putting in a vacuum chamber to eliminate that. Well, but, but the, the commenter on Reddit, uh, he his, his working criticism is that they have failed to account for thermal expansion of the apparatus itself. So his suggestion for, a, for further experimentation was to create different uh, tension systems with just different materials, you know, copper or iron or aluminum or whatever, and then see if the amount of force varies with the uh, uh, material because obviously they all have different specific heats and, you know, energy amount X would, would create a different expansion in different materials. I would be a little dubious that that would be the thing, though. I mean, if, if it's thermal expansion then you'd think, okay, it expands to a certain point and then it stops, right? But they're showing a constant thrust coming out of the device, right? You would, in order for it to be expansion, it would have the, the thermals would have to travel all the way into the measuring apparatus, right? And, is, and I guess that's what he's saying? Yeah, it's all connected. I mean, you have to connect it somehow in order to measure it. I mean, you connect yeah, the big I mean, microwave bell housing to something and then it pulls on the spring and then, you know, stuff moves. Yeah, right. So, I mean, you just have to insulate it properly. <laughs> well, that's the problem with the ground-based tests. That'll all be fixed when we try it in the satellite that they're talking about. Right. So, I mean, you have to, well, they'll have to insulate it possibly or insulate it better. I think his concept, though, is that no matter how much insulation you put between them, energy will leak somehow. And you'll have to get, uh, uh, you might, if you just put different materials, a spring made of one metal, a spring made of a different metal, a spring made of a different metal, if it varies with the spring, not with the amount of energy you put into it, well... You know that, that 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 could be you know that could be the the source of the the, the signal is what there's mm -hmm. is what he's saying. So, but again, it's the first step in the scientific method, right? You know, peer review. There's nothing like like Henry said, nothing obviously wrong with the setup. They pointed out where a flaw could be. Now it's up to everybody else to replicate it, and if they can replicate it, to you know improve the experimental apparatus to try to account for error. So, yep, science. Yes, science. And of course, if this CubeSat falls down out of the sky, we'll have our answer there too. I've I've been very skeptical of this whole thing in the past and so I don't, I'm always cautiously optimistic hey it comes it'd around, be cool if it but I, I don't ever don't ever really have too much hope <laughs> yeah yeah it'd be it'd be cool if it worked though but you know it's not to hold our breaths have you read seen heard it's something that others might be interested well send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com but now let's get to this week's flight deck 3175 Port Bay hands on approach trigger screen call the ball don't get technical with me our Star Citizen crowdfunding update for December 2nd, 2016, comparing to numbers before the live stream sale, $137 million gives SIG a haul of just over $7.2 million from the sale. 1.672 million registered accounts, up about 16,500. 1.114 million ships in the UE fleet, up about 38,000. As of this recording, 2.6 is in the hands of the Evocati for testing, along with some of the changes to Spectrum that are in the works outside the actual game. The Around the Verse episode this week also covered some of those changes in more detail. Of particular note are the changes to flight controls. Cruise mode has been changed in that it's no longer a thing. Instead, there are afterburners, which is not to be confused with boosting. Afterburners use a significant amount of fuel to boost you up to what used to be cruise velocity. Once there, that velocity is maintained until something changes it. Larger ships will apparently have higher average afterburner top speeds. Your maneuverability at so-called afterburner speeds is reduced, but you can engage boost. 
boosting overcharges your maneuvering thrusters to start your ship maneuvering even if it's coming out of afterburner. Racers are going to need to get used to switching back and forth or using both systems at once. During the flurry of sales and releases following the anniversary livestream, CIG held their monthly subscriber town hall, this time focused on various aspects of the Persistent Universe. Most of the news concerns roadmap items that won't be in 2.6 or even 3.0, but the discussion covered some interesting potential gameplay. When discussing NPCs, the developers revealed that non-critical NPCs won't interact much with the players, but they will interact with each other. That's a common sight in modern RPG and MMO games, but we're assured that we won't hear the same alien trying to pick up the obvious blubbly female over and over if we hang out at the bar. The conversations will vary and even change as a result of players' behavior. Also, shopkeepers and quest givers will have limited memory of the player, including their attitudes and behavior. For those worried about long-distance travel with wingmen, a quantum linking feature will work to keep groups in relative proximity during quantum travel. You won't be coming out of the, in the perfect formation, but ships won't drop out hundreds or thousands of kilometers from each other. The reason they might drop out are the introduction devices being worked on. These will interrupt quantum travel over a certain area. The size of the area is dependent on the power of the device, but the more power the device emits, the more likely it is to draw local law enforcement, if any. Also of interest to guard frequency, there will be a fleshed out system of medical and rescue missions. While some of them will be basic, others will be more involved, such as going in to locate and retrieve people from a derelict station, and retrieving an infected individual who will need skilled medical care in a med bay to prevent death. Just pulling them into the ship and throwing them on a med table won't be enough. There were several other topics discussed and detailed in the town hall, so check out the link in the show notes if you want more info. I found some of this interesting, especially the interdiction, because it seemed to me that they were pulling stuff from other space games. Well, the idea of some sort of interdiction, like interrupting whatever the fast travel method for the game is, isn't really new. So they, they had a different method for interdiction back in the, the Kickstarter days. Uh, the way that Rob described it was the pirate just kind of gets in the way of the other player while they're in quantum drive, and the other person's safety will shut off, right? And I think that back then, we were still operating under the idea that there were a lot more uh, waypoints and stuff like that. There were a lot, lot fewer waypoints, I mean, in that everybody would be in pretty prescribed lanes of travel. And so now because the, the engine is kind of open system where you can be in it, you can simply go out on cruise a little ways away from the space station before engaging quantum, you know, that, the pirate's no longer in your way anymore when you, for your vector to that jump point. So unless you're going to be at the jump point, you can't catch anybody. And so they had to figure out a way to make the bubble bigger that would cause people to hit the pirate and drop out for safety reasons. And so... Thus, an interdiction device. I think uh, Elite has it too, obviously, but I, I think it's an, a logical device to have in a fiction like this. And uh, it's a little fuzzy. It's a little fuzzy. They picked the same names, but uh, I guess it just like the whole uh, super cruise and stuff they had originally. It's a uh, it's an easy thing to latch onto and uh, get the point across to people. I'm sure it, it would pr probably called something else in the actual game. Is my guess probably are using it as a placeholder even if they don't know that they're using it as a placeholder because like obviously they just got rid of cruise mode which pretty much eliminates any correlation between that and super cruise so the interdiction may get a different name when all is said and done i'm wondering though with what you said given that people can basically like jet out on the short end of a triangle and significantly modify their route of travel. I wonder if these will actually be used very often to pull people out of quantum travel as opposed to possibly deploying them to keep people from launching into quantum travel. That's a good point. Yeah, it could be, it, it could be either one, really. We're about preventing people from launching is more plausible to me because once you get into that quantum travel, unless, unless you can get in front of them, and the safeties kick on, there's really, I mean, mathematically and theoretically, there's just, it's almost impossible. It depends on how big the bubble is, right? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a pretty 
pretty big circle that you would create on a plane that somebody would travel through, right? If as, as, as long as you're willing to spend the power, right? But we don't know what that trade-off is right now. I mean, in order to be interesting gameplay, I feel like either it would have to be in a system where nobody's going to care, or these interdiction areas would have to be like the size of small moons in order to really catch anyone on a regular basis. Well, they said that you'd be able to, like the, the small bubbles, would you be able to... You'd be able to burst out of them in, you know, 10 seconds or something like that. And the bigger ones would be something, I can't remember what the numbers Tony said, but some sort of um, like 30 seconds or 45 seconds, right? And so if we're talking about these burst speeds, these these these, uh, these cruise speeds, I mean, that's still a fairly large area. It may not be a planet size, but you're right, it may be a small moon. It sounds more like the, uh, not so much the interdiction mechanic as the mass locking mechanic in Elite. We're just being close to an enemy or a large source of uh, mass like a station keeps you from being able to go to super cruise at all did anyone look into the flight changes they implemented well there was a contentious point on that uh, that was brought up during rtv today so the the way it's described in tony's tony's interview is that you you get into or in some of the other previous interviews is that you you burst up to cruise and you stay at cruise right what was revealed in RTV today is once you get to cruise, you still consume fuel to stay there. Um, and you won't necessarily slow down unless you want to. You don't stop burning your cruise fuel. Now your fuel burns at a much slower rate once you're at when you're, once you're no longer accelerating. I guess they're still assuming some sort of space friction. <laughs> that is a point of contention. I mean, if they're going for Newtonian physics, once you reach max velocity, or if you indeed even reach max velocity, if you continue to use thrust, you would continue to uh, accelerate. So they're, they must be thinking we're all stupid. Well, it's an obvious game mechanic because they want us to consume fuel as a resource that we'll have to monitor. And if we can just get up to speed and then sit there, you know, what's to keep us from just staying at speed until, it's, until we get wherever we're going to go? There's there's no, like, limit on where we can go based on fuel that way. Well, I don't, I don't think that's the problem. Um, I mean, the speeds in which you travel at cruise, you're not going to want to go that. So you're not going to want to go yeah, that Yeah, you're not going to want to hang out there. And besides, changing course is going to be uh, exercise in physics that you really don't want to. I think it's more along the lines of you don't want people to be able you want You want certain ship choices to have a better chance of catching people. And so let's say you have a ship that has a very low fuel capacity but has a uh, really high thrust vector, right? Like a like an M50. And so your M50 shoots up to cruise and gets away from the, I don't know, the pirate in a um, Vanguard. And the Vanguard can hold a lot more fuel. He may not be able to go as fast as the M50, but he, he gets up to speed, he'll catch the M50 because the M50 will run out of fuel if his cruise takes fuel the whole time. It's annoying from a space nerd point of view <laughs> but it makes gameplay sense because it gives more depth to the ships i guess it definitely gives another gameplay mechanic because being able to chase somebody down and then outlast them is a is a cool idea i've not thought of in a space combat game really the other thing that wasn't answered uh, significantly for me was the refueling options are we going to deploy some type of sail to collect stellar gases or dust they've always talked about having a um like on the hornet some of the vents are denoted in some of the schematics as uh, as fuel collectors and things like that. So all the sh and that's the reason they have well, at least in the old Hornet design there were fans on the front and things like that. I think all the ships are supposed to have some sort of fuel gaining mechanic. Now, whether that gives them enough fuel fast enough to do anything with, I think is TBD. But that's also one of the, I guess the the in fiction reason why we don't use fuel up when we're navigating an SVM, right? We're just not using fuel up fast enough to get below the um, the threshold where you see it. You're just always gaining fuel very, very slowly. I mean, in Arena Commander right now, your burst fuel replenishes over time. You don't run out. They originally said that gathered fuel was going to be like a less optimal option. Like it was either going to burn a lot less efficiently or like degrade the components somehow. That was also before they had multiple types of fuel. Now, apparently, there's three types. And that's why I brought up the question, of what is our fuel-gathering capabilities? What are we going to deploy to gather cruise fuel? Or Thrusting fuel, and you have quantum fuel, and you have jump fuel. So none of those deal with cruise. I mean, cruise is basically just the same thing as thrusting fuel, I think, at this point. That's what it seems like. 
Mark Allen posted some updates on the upcoming balance changes coming to Elite Dangerous in both the combat and engineering blueprint threads. The previously mentioned 35% boost to plasma accelerator damage has been reduced to 10%. Combined with its new ability to ignore resistances, it should make PAs a viable but not automatic choice. Rebooting your shield generator will additionally restore 50% of your maximum shield strength, but only if you are nearly stationary or under 50 meters per second. The proposed increase to burst laser efficiency and link of sensor module reading to gimbaled effectiveness will go forward as planned, but Frontier is watching both carefully and requests feedback once the beta is opened. After fixing some issues related to beam laser engineering, they will soon have access to efficient and overcharge modifications. The short range modifier will no longer reduce projectile speed or damage falloff, and additionally will get a 5% damage increase. This should make its maximum DPS similar to overcharged or rapid fire, meaning the choice of which mode to use should simply be a preference, rather than one mode giving a clear advantage. With the removal of the ranged modifier on focused weapons, the devs ask that anyone using those weapons who now prefer long range to get in touch with them via the dedicated help topic on the forums. More generally, if anyone feels they are going to have to recraft items as a result of these changes, they would like your detailed feedback answering the questions asked in Mark's update post. Meanwhile, N colon yeah, registration is now open for commanders who wish to join up with an organization as part of the expansion initiative in the new second bubble. The top 10 organizations will get their own faction in that region, so choose wisely and make your contribution. Finally, this week's newsletter introduced Spidermine Games, developers of an officially licensed Elite Dangerous tabletop role-playing game. Open playtesting is currently in progress with a full-length introductory adventure available through the EDRPG website, and the full game will be launching by Kickstarter on January 16, 2017. What this may mean for Elite Encounters RPG, kickstarted in early 2013, is unknown. Licensed through one of the Writer's Pack pledge levels in the original ED campaign, that project has been delayed several times. Recent updates have reflected discussion between the author David Hughes and Frontier on the matter of retaining the license and making a final release. So did Elite just do a large-scale balance pass? They're still cleaning up a whole lot of bugs. There was a second beta for their newest um, expansion, and after that they're still cleaning it up. So it's it's a balance pass, and it's going to continue, but it's not finished. I'm sure they're still collecting uh, feedback on the whole thing. Well, it certainly changed, sounds like they changed a lot of the modifiers. It kind of sucks if, uh, if you made something and you can't get it back. Yeah, but Elite's been good about taking care of things like that whenever somebody gets locked out of a system or stuck in a place because they've changed something, they move you back, or when a bug has caused even me to lose uh, ships and have to pay insurance, they're good about refunding it if you contact them through the forums. So it's cool that they're following up with that stuff and nobody's really going to lose as long as they send them an email. So I saw a lot of buzz about the tabletop role-playing game earlier today. Yeah, it could be really exciting. I'm, I'm kind of curious as to what perspective they're doing the role-playing from, whether you're doing ships or characters. or That's an interesting thing I hadn't thought of. Everything in Elite is from the perspective of your ship, but I can't imagine a role-playing game would be much fun that way. Well, it depends. I mean, you could just make ships as characters rather than individual people. Uh, like, it would probably be a little difficult for some people to wrap their head around, but... Well, it depends on whether this is theater of the mind or whether it's miniatures-based or whatnot. I mean, if this is like a hex grid-style wargaming miniatures with spaceships, I mean, that's totally easy to, to imagine, right? You, you all have stats, you move around, you, you know, battle-tech it all up, right? And then your your pilots are just like, you know, pilots in battle-tech, you know, you don't really fight with them on the... On the, on the um, the field, but you do story back, you know, afterwards in between the battles and things like that. It could go the other way, though, and, uh, you know, you can see this in a variety of space RPGs, pen and paper RPGs, where people have multiple characters in the ship and, and things like that, so maybe they, they treat it like a, a Star Trek or Star Wars or any of those other, other franchises. Yeah, but on, on the same vein, even if it wasn't a gridded RPG system, you could still do a system where the players are essentially ships rather than individual beings. 
because it's still it's still the same point of abstraction. You just have things like you know armor and shields rather than con and AC. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. You could do a theater of the mind style non miniatures ship only RPG where each person has their own ship and they're playing those factions. I mean, heck, you could do. You could boil it down to rock, paper, scissors and stuff as resolution mechanics if you wanted to. Personally, <laughs> I think I would not be as excited about that. That kind of mechanics lends itself to a visual medium, and I think they would be missing an opportunity if they didn't go along that route. Kind of amusing that the tabletop RPG may have multi-crewed ships before the actual <laughs> game does. Hey, all I expect is a Japanese manga coming out next for ED. Heck, Star <laughs> Citizen know. has a manga. <laughs> I'm sure it does. Despite gamers abandoning the game in droves shortly after its release and the recent loss of a developer to CIG, No Man's Sky has apparently been forging or flogging ahead, depending on your point of view, with development. The Foundation update, also known as version 1.1, was released to the game earlier this week. First, the easy stuff. Some quality of life improvements have been added to the basic gameplay and interface. These include a quick access option for common tasks and resources from the inventory, modified colors and tints to make key information more visible, and the ability to stack products, not resources, five deep in the inventory, greatly increasing the amount of space. There are also some new technical tweaks to the graphics, including motion blur and anti-aliasing both can be toggled on and off for based on your preference. In-game, resources on planets are now much more biome-specific and less plentiful. Many more people have reported actually running out of critical resources such as plutonium, something that you could basically trip over by accident prior to the update. The first brand new item is three gameplay options. In addition to normal, which is the gameplay mode everyone remembers, there is now survival mode. People who have tried it report that the only differences are increased strains on the suit systems and more hazardous environments. But when combined with the new scarcity of resources, it can easily strand a player on a planet or prevent them from finding life-giving resources. Steam discussions are full of reports of players being dropped on a random planet at start and then dying before they can even think about fixing their ship due to total lack of resources required. The most touted new feature of the update is the base building system. Players can now locate abandoned bases on planets and, if they desire, claim them, adding modules such as storage bays for materials and hydroponics to grow unique plants. When announced, many people questioned the purpose of building a base in an exploration game. The response is that there are now teleporters on space stations, allowing players to return to their base to drop off resources, exchange goods, and so on. Also, if the player finds a new location where they want to relocate, the base they built can be 100% refunded and reconstructed in the new location. The hydroponics bay is part of some of the new features as well. Players can grow plants outside of the base, but with flora being more specific to certain biomes. They may not be able to grow all the required plants on their home planet. Hydroponics allow growth of exotic plants and, if one hires an alien to do maintenance, can even grant unique extras. The hireable aliens can also assist with weapons development and other projects to help players improve their inventories. There are a number of other improvements that have been added and reception from players seems to be mostly positive so far. Those interested in a complete list of changes should check out the official release information linked in the show notes. I think it's a little too late, and to me, the, some of the changes don't even sound worth uh, hanging on to it. Well, it does give the game a little bit more individual purpose, because um, this sort of pushes it more into Minecraft territory, where you can build your own uh, thing and sort of call it yours. Prior to this, everything you were building or crafting was basically something the game told you to craft. You know, you didn't get any benefit from it other than keeping what you already had going. This is the first example of something where you can actually make a decision that will have a more permanent effect on the game as a whole. I do agree with your point. I don't necessarily know that this is going to attract a lot of people back who might have abandoned it due to lack of interest before. I mean, if it makes the game more enjoyable for the people who are still playing it or who might want to give it a second try, that's certainly an improvement. I'm excited to try it out. Um, I've seen a couple of streamers play it and it doesn't look too bad. I do kind of wish they'd spent their time on something else rather than base building. I would have rather them had spent a lot more time on 
making the plants more interesting, making life a little more interesting, uh, making potentially new store lines that are more engaging, things like that. I, I don't think, um, I don't know, base buildings has been done so many other places and done so well other places. I'm not sure that, like, I can't imagine them actually adding something in their game that's going to be any better than any of the other games that are out there. I imagine that back in their home office, there are a lot of sort of hard discussions being had about how much um, improvement they want to try to sink into this at this point. I suspect that this update was probably already in development before the game was really released. So they probably just finished this up. It remains to be seen whether there will be any more significant updates after I mean, this. They had mentioned a long time ago that lots of people were requesting base building be a feature. I never understood why they would why so many people cared about base building in an exploration game where the whole point is to get away from the planet you're currently on. That's why Fallout 4 is so popular uh, and not seen as a, just a, an extension of Fallout 3 is because of the building aspects. People love to build. I would rather build a spaceship. In No Man's Sky, you have to find all your stupid spaceships. You know, I thought I always thought that was stupid. Why don't why didn't they spend a bunch of time into like building spaceships and building things that you carry with you as you go and making those things unique? Um, they should have had, you know, the ability to, to walk around inside of a larger spaceship that you build and then you just deal with that, right? Or you, you add a hydroponics area onto your space station that you're building or something like that that goes with you. You know, that, that could have done in a couple of different ways. That makes a lot more sense in exploration, but at least you can dismantle your buildings for 100% refund of what you put into them and take the resources with you. So you can take your base with you, kind of, but um, the other thing I noticed about the base building is I, I, it looks like you have to find a site that's already got a building on it and then you can add to it. So you're still looking for what the game hands you as far as where you can set up. You can't just pick a nice place with a nice ridge and put a house on it. You have to find something where there's already been something spawned, I believe. Yeah, that's correct. I mean, I don't think anybody is arguing that this is a revolutionary feature that, like, is the silver bullet that makes this game playable. I think it's more like, okay, before it was a game that had a lot of problems in the gameplay and the ability to now build a base um, to advance the things you want to advance and to store more materials apart from whatever limited space you have in your personal inventory or your ship inventory. It, like, it takes off a lot of the sharper edges that were present in the gameplay. I don't think anybody's saying that it turns the game from uh, a mediocre experience into a great experience. I think it's still a mediocre experience at best. I think it's just like, now if someone were to pick it up for the first time, they might go, okay, this game is all right. It wasn't that bad, as opposed to saying before what everyone was is this game has serious issues and it's it's playable, but it's not really enjoyable after the first hour or two. Yeah, I think it, it, it'll probably reinvigorate the community a little bit. You'll get a bunch of people playing it for a little while. But this is... I don't think I'm going to try it again until they fix the flight model. Uh, the, the flight model on planet is just so simplified and arcadey to me. It's not really fun. Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I'm not sure we're going to see any big changes like that coming forward. I imagine that uh, the developers probably have a lot of people encouraging them to just sort of let it die and move on to something else. What else would you buy from this developer? That's the other thing. This, this is like eight guys, right? And they've sold probably a good number of copies regardless of the, the media backlash. They probably have enough funding to keep going for a while. If they were to actually make progress on this game, they already have kind of a media platform for pushing it out and potentially people that would continue to buy it, right? Or they'd, they'd continue to play and pull their friends in if they actually got a good community out there. If Hello Games just drops No Man's Sky and starts working on another game, who is going to buy that game? I don't think anybody is. You know, they're going to look at No Man's Sky. You promised this and you didn't deliver, right? I mean, it doesn't matter what they do from now on. The next game they have will not work. Sean Murray is screwed either way, right? His name is the same as Hello Nick Games. Whatever he does next is is might as well be under Hello Games because he's not going to go anywhere else and get a job in the gaming industry after this. You don't think they'll take him at CIG? They <laughs> took the other developer. I thought that was interesting. I yeah, that was for like network code or something. I don't you know some developers are just developers. Some developers are. 
Molyneux and, and, and things like that, you know, this is a Molyneux-esque overstatement without any kind of positive follow-through, right? So Sean Murray is more of a pariah than anything at this other point, you know. Do you remember the name of the guy that came to sing? I don't. Then it doesn't matter, right? Because he wasn't doing something important enough for it to matter. So, I mean, but to the point is, if Sean Murray owns Hello Games, he might as well just keep going on uh, No Man's Sky and trying to make that a popular thing post-fact before moving to his next game or just get out of the gaming industry. Those are his two real options, I think. Yeah, I think Walmart's hiring for the holiday rush right now. I mean, I, I don't want to <laughs> I mean, I know that he put a lot of time and effort into it, so I don't want to play that down. But the, the hype machine really ruined his reputation and everybody kind of feels that way. I feel bad for the guy, but... It's unfortunate. I noticed the, the big difference between this latest update and the original release is the development of it was very quiet. That was interesting because he just worked on it quietly and then all of a sudden this good stuff came out. Hopefully it's good. I'm going to download it, yeah. but I, without the flight model fix, I, don't, I doubt it'll be worth much. I wouldn't classify this development as, as quiet. I would classify it as dead silent, right? Nobody knew they were even working on anything at all, right? And then all of a sudden... Here's a full-blown patch. It's patch. It's right now. That is really the worst thing you could possibly do unless you have positive rep already. I mean, the fact that they didn't even tell anyone they were working on something and, oh, we'll be releasing something at some point, right, or something like that. They didn't say anything at all. That is the worst PR strategy you can possibly do, and I don't think it's really helped them. Second worst. I, th I think the worst was uh, bragging about it before it came out, and then we saw what happened. So this could probably be the second worst mistake they could make, but I don't know. I think... Anything they'd have said would have been looked at with such skepticism that people would have torn this patch apart when it came out. But since he was quiet, people are actually looking at it and most of the feedback has been positive. It's just met with a lot of jaded attitudes like we all have about will it matter. You know what I mean? I think he would have messed that up if he'd have been vocal about what he was doing to fix it. So now it's time for news we didn't use. CIG released two Q&A write-ups for the new Esperia Prowler ship. Those interested in the latest gunship should go take a look. The Advertising and Standards Agency has absolved Hello Games of the charge that they engaged in false advertising about No Man's Sky. Inove have settled on using DirectX 12 over Vulcan for rendering and have released some new shots of the Interceptor planet side. Thanks go out to A Space Toy for the genesis of this week's debate. One major premise of online multiplayer games is that the players have to be online. Unfortunately, internet connections are not consistent for everyone, nor do most people have a redundant backup connection if their primary one fails. Drop connections are a fact of life and can have an effect on the gaming experience not only for the dropper, but for the others left in the game. In FPS games where 30 to 60 people are competing and are largely interchangeable targets, one person disappearing doesn't usually matter. But in situations where combat isn't forced and constant, or where there is significance to the person's avatar online, either because of a unique contribution they're making or in-game rewards attached to their defeat, having them drop off can result in serious negative consequences for the player still in the game. Obviously, since it's a feature that can cause problems for other players, some gamers exploit it. Combat logging, as Ostron recently learned, is the term for when someone is who is losing a significant conflict in-game will simulate a drop connection, either by force quitting the game or literally yanking their internet cable out of the wall. With mini games, that action prevents the actual defeat from happening, preventing negative consequences from their own account and or depriving their attacker from reaping the benefits of a win. Most reasonable gamers condemn this behavior, but opinions are varied when it comes to measures that could suppress or punish it. Advocates insist that imposing punishments such as assumed defeat or having the player's avatar persist in-game for a period of time after this connection, either inactive or taken over by an ASIC AI, would allow most conflicts to resolve despite the absence of the actual player. Opponents insist these systems would unfairly punish players with legitimate connection issues, and suggest those incidents are far more common than the combat loggers. 
Some pessimistically predict that loggers will find methods to subvert any such systems, compounding the unfair treatment of people with the legitimate connection issues. Gentlemen, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to debate the punishments for in-game disconnects. Ostron believes the first time you don't show up for work, you should be fired before anyone even takes lunch. Whereas Henry pulls over and starts running as soon as he sees the police car on the same road as him. So, Ostron, why are in-game combat logging measures doomed to failure? Well, I'm glad you asked, Kinshaw. Basically, there's no real way to differentiate between someone who is actively disconnecting in order to avoid losing a fight and someone who just happens to be playing the game while there's a raging thunderstorm outside. If you put any sort of universal system in place to punish disconnects that aren't legitimate, it's going to catch way more people who are just having connection issues than it is people who are trying to grief other players. Henry, what's your response? You know, I honestly felt the same way until this uh, whole thing blew up in Elite recently, and I, I really looked at combat logging, and there's got to be a way to stop it. And, and people do need to be punished for being caught doing it. Um, imagine, or you can tell the difference between someone who has been disconnected by a thunderstorm and someone who's combat logging looking at the values of their hull, the values of whatever their stats are at the time they disconnected. Where were they? Were they in conflict? You know what I mean? You can see that. Thank you, Henry. Ostron, how do you respond? Well, you can see it, but you still need individual intelligent intervention, I feel like, because you're going to have in games like Elite a lot of situations where a person's hull will be damaged or their weapons will be charged or they'll be engaged in some, side of, some sort of active activity. And if they disconnect, it's going to look just like they dropped out. You need to have somebody look into the issue on an individual basis in order to keep it fair. Hmm. Well, what do you say, Henry? You make some interesting points, but I mean, you can you can definitely see a lot of people are going to say, oh, I, I have connection problems, but it's going to be obvious when they're obviously dropping in combat and they're only dropping in combat. And you can look at their history of disconnects if you record that kind of thing in combat logs and see that they're always disconnecting when they're losing and they're not disconnecting when they're winning. You can, you'd be able to tell. I mean, it seems to me like common sense that you'd be able to tell. Thank you, gentlemen. I think Jeff had an opinion on this subject, correct? Henry touched on exactly what can be done. Most games like this keep some kind of leaderboard logs uh, available for everyone to see. And you can correlate when someone is in battle and when somebody disconnects. I think remedies can be player-driven, especially when you can broadcast to all who cares to look on a person's ratio of disconnects in combat. By doing so, you expose a player's attitude. And by exposing them, they tend to not want to be known for doing that. I've always been a fan of the way that Ultima Online handled it where when you disconnected your player just stood there and I, you know it is annoying you know when I did have the occasional disconnects and and, and my um, come to log back in and find somebody had just ganked my character because I was just standing in the middle of the road but I felt that was the fairest way to do it unfortunately with Ultima online when you tried to when you you know killed your client without uh, properly logging off and camping or whatever you were there for a good five minutes which meant it was a really long time it occurs to me though that you could come up with a solution that's somewhere a combination of what you guys just were just mentioning. If you did have a ratio, it disconnects during combat versus disconnects in other situations, then you could uh, build up a factor where the longer the factor is, the longer your, your character stays persistent after a, a disconnection. Whereas, you know, if somebody very rarely disconnects and usually if they do, it's out of combat, perhaps their, their, their ship disappears when they log off the first time, right? Whereas if as, as the percentage grows or if as they more commonly disconnect without properly logging off, their ship stays there longer. Um, another thing that would, I guess, refutes my own point and refutes the, the, the system that you guys were just mentioning is that if this system was commonly known, if people figured out why their ship was sticking around longer or while they were not getting punished in other ways, then people that are exploiting the system could just simply pull the cord in different areas of the game in order to affect their statistics. I mean, the only counter argument I can immediately come up with is that it requires a consistent pattern of behavior to be established, which once 
that's recognized, obviously something's done about it, but it doesn't do anything to alleviate the people who are getting shafted in the early attempts. My position in the debate, which isn't necessarily my position in uh, in real life, but I'm sort of stuck on the fence in this one, is that if you have teams looking into the issues on an individual basis, then there can be some remuneration or some recompense for the people who are sort of screwed over right from the beginning. Um, obviously, the drawback to that is that you need people to actually like be available to look into all of that, which gets prohibitively expensive really quick. What I'm really against is punishments in games. So you're asking the developers to come up with some method of, of basically doing the punishing this activity and and really i'm so against that i mean it's we're already there's already so many game rules as it is and and um in this situation i think publicly displaying their the your disconnects and combat logging uh or your combat um st uh, stats uh is a good start and maybe maybe as a punishment you get the title forced on you as a combat logger i mean not many people are going to want to engage you if you're carrying around something that's so visible. That's that's a stigma that some people would actually seek, you know. Well, I you know that if that's what you actually seek, that's your type of mentality, and I still think that nobody will want to engage with you. But here's an interesting point too. We're talking about a lot of ways to get around combat logging, but the thing that's common to all of them is it requires effort on the developer's part. And I'm a big fan of Frontier. I love Elite immensely. Um, but recently, and I read an article on Eurogamer is where I got this. There were some guys that were trying to get the combat logging exposed and say, you know, show what Elite's really doing to combat it. And they had sent in videos proving that uh, some players were combat logging, and the case got closed, but looking at the Google Analytics, it showed the videos had never been watched in the first place. So Elite's stance on that was, we have a great system in place, and when we get evidence of combat logging, we take action. They didn't say what that action was. But then they said it appears in this case, in this case only, it wasn't followed. But that seems crazy. This case, in this case only, what a, that's a crazy statement. That is a crazy statement. And that's, I'd rather them uh, come down heavy on on trashy talk in, in chat or, you know, racist comments and, you know, not friendly to kids or something other than, you know, something that obviously they can't really control. Having really extraordinary measures for this particular problem, I think, is just simply unnecessary. I think they should just make your characters persistent past the <laughs> past the point you logged out. I mean, that you know, we can find some sort of happy medium on time. You can modify the time based on metrics of, uh, of disconnects or something like that. But I think at the end of the day, having somebody become immune or immediately pull them as soon as their disconnect, as soon as their their network traffic stops, I think is a bad idea. You heard our thoughts on it earlier. We want to hear yours. So this week's community question, can games implement effective systems to combat and discourage combat loggers? Or will they invariably fail and end up unfairly punishing people with legitimate connection issues? Have you seen or thought of an effective system game developers can use? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com. And now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune to the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? Well, Some say that ten years later, Mrs. Shiv still puts up with him, and declares his love by making a German chocolate coconut cream pecan pie. But all we know is he's called the Shiv, and he helped put together this week's feedback. Community question. SIG is publishing their internal development schedule for all backers on their website. Straight up. Is this a good move or not? Sean Newboy rides in and says, Wonderful show, everyone. An excellent move. Krell chimed in and said, With regards to publishing the schedule, I think it's pretty simple. Listing the tasks that remain to be completed is an excellent idea and, frankly, should have been happening all along. Dates, on the other hand, should never be posted unless they are absolutely certain. The first of those is informational, you know, as in open development. The second is committing to something, and going back on that commitment is how you stir up a, the sludge of the bottom of the internet. Amontillado writes in and says it's a good thing. More genuine transparency is absolutely welcome. And I enjoy the peek behind the curtain that Star Citizen has been. And this lets me see more. So, uh, Kinshadow, you weren't around 
when we originally posted this question. So uh, do you have any particular opinions on it? Oh, I absolutely love it. I love looking at the charts. I should have done it a long damn time ago. The fact that, you know, we, we find out about this, the real reason for delay is, you know, eight months later has always been incredibly silly to me. Uh, you know, we always have to put like a Chris tax on the schedules they give us and stuff. It's really silly. This Back this game to see under the bonnet and screw anyone that says differently. I might have been a little too strong. I didn't mean to actually say screw you people. You were fine people. But seriously, we need to see this kind of stuff. In general feedback, Jiru writes in and says, A little something about combat logging. So there is this 10 for the chairman a while back where they talk about the idea that if you don't go to sleep in bed, that characters will take over and fly to a friendly LZ in park. I wonder if they could possibly just have an AI take over for you when someone combat logs or disconnects. If it's a real disconnected player, the player will have a fighting chance when they reconnect. For the combat logger, they will have to suck it. Rebel chimes in and says, Call of Duty can have a super fast time to kill because of the My First FPS respawn fest where death carries effectively no penalty, so of course no one minds spawn, die, spawn, die. Games like Battlefield 3 and 4 have a bit longer time to kill, but carries a longer death penalty, although you can spawn, say, 10 to 20 seconds from the action. Then some games like Counter-Strike have a death penalty of up to 5 minutes, as you can't respawn until a new round. Now in Star Citizen, given that a persistent universe death, assuming it doesn't cause character permadeath, will carry a death penalty of however long it takes to get back to where you were, from the med center, all the gear you were carrying, your ship, wherever it was parked, etc., etc., utterly no one will risk FPS engagement if you will literally step out of the airlock and get one-shotted by some gimp camping next to the inner airlock door. There's also the question of realism when these guys are wearing armor made of the same sort of ally that can cope with the stresses of space combat and atmospheric re-entry. You'd be lucky if a 10mm caliber slug machine round could even possibly penetrate this sort of metal without it being made out of pure hardened unobtainium with a muzzle velocity approaching the speed of light. That was fascinating. <laughs> yeah. Nimrod77 writes in and says, Hi again, guys. Great show again. Just a point of order in regards to the ship melting in prices. You will always get back what you pledged for a ship at the time you pledge. No more, no less. The difference with the cheaper War Bond version is that they give you a slight discount if you pay with cash rather than melting. It's designed to bring new money rather than just shuffle around ship pledges. I don't have a major issue with it in general. The reasoning behind the new variances of the Saber, Gladius, Avenger, and Hornet, however, I feel are a bit weak. The same ships with a paint job and crappier letout seems that they are pretty lame excuse for the extra costs. Amontillado returns to speak of the Meltoning. As to cash discounts, I think it's often lost or forgotten that the ability to melt our ships for store credit isn't something that SIG had to grant us. I think that allowing us to do this at all is extremely generous, and I have no problem with them incentivizing the use of cash with a discount. It's not that a person's $100 is now worth $90, it's that the $100 is not yours at all anymore. It's already been spent. That we can trade in old ships for new ones is a courtesy that I'm thankful for. Well, the comments I would have to say about that is, remember, this is pledge dollars. And this is where I have the problem with it. Because it's a game in development and it's pledged, and it's digital assets, it shouldn't really matter. You should be getting dollars for dollars. So my personal opinion is I don't have a problem with this when it's small amounts of money. I did have a problem when, it, when they were doing the war bond addresses, where they were selling thousands of new capital ships at basically the same price that people paid for them three years ago. So it's something that was supposed to be extremely limited, something that's supposed to be only, you know, a couple of thousand in the verse or something like that. And, you know, if they're going to sell them again, they're going to be way more expensive. They're the same price. You know, it's $1,300 for $1,250, right? Three years ago, same exact damn ship. And back then, there were no credits at all. You couldn't melt anything. Right, that's a relatively new feature in terms of these kinds of ships. So the this this the new this whole idea that we're going to give somebody the same price that we gave a whole bunch of people back when they didn't even have melting, I think that's a little annoying. 
if they're going to do this, I don't have I don't have any problem with people giving giving cash discounts. I think that's a fine way of doing it. But it should definitely the cash discount should still be significantly more for these ships that are, you know, you didn't have an option to buy them before. You should it should have been say fifteen hundred warbon and two thousand credit or something like that rather than uh, thirteen hundred warbon. Now, we're talking about insane amounts of money here for a video game asset, but I think we're all, we all knew that going in, and I think we're all talking about it either way, and these damn things sell out in the thousands either way. Well, yeah, I mean, they pulled in $7.2 million as a result of the sale, and a lot of that was probably the javelins and the idrises that went on sale. Exactly. So I think people that put money back into this game when it was a new thing and they were spending thousands of dollars in 2012 or 2013 are somewhat kind of I agree I can see the annoyance here and why is it is so incredibly annoying personally again I have no problem with this when it's like $10 or $20 or something like that I do have a problem when it's hundreds of dollars I, I had expected based on the blowback on this for SIG not to do these kinds of things going forward but i think based on the success of this, this this sale is that we will continue to see this i mean this is they made most of their money probably off war bonds and people putting new money into the game because they felt like they were getting something special out of it and our new patreons this week is no one what absolutely no one oh that's so sad Hey, we'll we'll do the Warbond thing and with Patreon and we'll figure something out. We'll make sure you feel real taken care of. All patches owed should be in the mail or already adorning your jacket, jeans, or favorite jammies. Please let us know if you think you're owed one and don't have one yet. And this week's community question. Can games implement effective systems to combat and discourage combat loggers? Or will they invariably fail and end up unfairly punishing people with legitimate connection issues? Have you seen or thought of an effective system game developers can use? Let us know your thoughts. Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com or post over on our show thread at guardfrequency.com. So how was the show? Did you stick it out to the bitter end? Or were you tempted to pull the plug halfway through? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on this show's post over at guardfrequency.com. Or hit us up on Twitter at guardfreak. Or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at facebook.com. If you're old school like us, shoot us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 147 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 148 on December 13th, so be sure to keep an eye out for the shows on our website at guardfrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything on Friday nights, then you can always join us live over at guardfrequency.com live. We start recording around 10 p.m. Central, unless Tony's helping us, in which case it's 10 p.m.-ish. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. For just $1.25, and that's $1.25, no war bonds, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows as well as being entered into our weekly draw for some Guard Frequency goodies. We want to thank all of our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week and hope you'll consider making a regular contribution because, really, the more support we get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you hang out with us. Check out our website and look under Call Sign section for details on how you can fly with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek, from the TV series, the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to track them out over at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lowmaster, our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pantad, and of course, our audio engineer, Mikey. Thanks to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jenkins for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit RonaldJenkins.com for more of his work. 
But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty low. Reduce thrust. And as always, keeping an eye on us, <clears throat> and as always, keeping an eye on our dulcet tones is the nun, is none other than the Romulan Ale. The Romulan <laughs> this, is, this is gonna be a great podcast, guys. I know it right now. All right. <clears throat> yep. That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and head straight over to Nope, that's not right at all. Again. And that's everybody. Now, now feel free to comment.